Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week on the podcast, we welcome Bill McKibben. Bill is one of the earliest voices on climate danger and the founder of the environmental organization 350.org. You could imagine building a different America. The problem, of course, is that we have to do it very fast because climate change in particular is a timed test. This is not a the poor you will always have with you kind of uh, long-term problem. <laughs> this is solve it soon or never solve it. Um, and and so, uh, you know, when I despair, it's that our institutions and indeed ourselves are not great at quick action. But that's the interesting challenge of where we are right now. And there are things to make us think that we might be able to do what we need to do. A distinguished scholar in environmental studies at Middlebury College, the winner of the Gandhi Peace Award and many other honors, and the author of more than a dozen books. His most recent book is called The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. Um, uh, he's written a column for many years, Sojourners, where I was, and we've gotten to know each other over the years. Uh, this is a book about race, real estate, and religion, <laughs> and the planet. It's a great read. So, Bill McGiven, welcome to the program. Well, Jim, what a pleasure to get to join you. Um, it really is. And, you've, of course, your witness and your work have meant an awful lot to me over the years. And so I'm awfully uh, honored just to get to talk with you for a while. Well, our traditions, Bill, we say that I'm, I'm, I feel blessed to be here with you today. So let's go. I, I often ask, like to ask a question of my guests here at the beginning, and you can take this in any direction you like. Uh, Bill, how is your spirit these days? How is your spirit? Well, it's a good question. Um, in some ways, the last summer, summer of 2023, has been as dispiriting as any, as any in my life, just because the thing that I've been trying to warn people about for my entire adult life, the climate crisis, uh, is breaking over our heads like a, uh, like a tidal wave. Um, you know, I wrote the first book about what we now call global warming or climate change, what we then called the greenhouse effect back in 1989. And we knew then what we know now. There's no surprises. And what the scientists told us would happen has, as of this summer, profoundly happened. We had a series of days, weeks, months uh, towards in June and July this year that scientists said were certainly by far the hottest days the planet has experienced since we began keeping records. Those records go back about 200 years, but actually scientists have a whole range of proxy records, tree rings, ocean sediments, ice cores that let them extend that uh, record much further back. And they're convinced that at a minimum, the weather we had in June and July of 2023 was the hottest that the planet has had for at least 125,000 years, i.e. nobody that we would really think of as human, certainly no society that we would think of as human has ever lived through anything like what we've been living through. Um, that's dispiriting to me because in many ways it represents a profound failure on, on my part. Um, you know, I've spent my life trying to 
warn people so that they would do something about this, trying to organize people to do something about it. And we've made some progress, which I'm happy to talk about. And sometimes that's, you know, raises one's spirits. But the, um, the scoreboard here is the temperature. The scoreboard here is the CO2 readings from the mountaintop at Mauna Loa. And those demonstrate the uh, ongoing failure of our efforts. So in that way, um, I think it's been a difficult, difficult stretch. It isn't prevent me from uh, getting out and organizing. And the work that we're now doing, especially at Third Act, organizing older Americans, is incredibly exciting and going really well, and I think has very profound things to offer and enormous room to grow. So I get up every morning, uh, you know, excited, willing to go to work, but I'd be lying if I said uh, this hadn't been a um, dispiriting stretch of time. Well, I can relate to that, Bill, in my own life, because having tried to talk about how radical the Gospels are, how faith leads to justice, the name of my chair here at Georgetown, uh, the rise of white Christian nationalism is the opposite of everything that I've worked for and lived for my whole life. So I can relate to that, to that dispiriting. Man, do I hear you on that. I, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker earlier this year on the topic, once those, when that data came out about that new sort of set of polling data about Christian nationalism, <clears throat> just saying, uh, high time for those of us who are Christians to be making this an absolutely central part of our work uh, because it's an attack not only on on black people and on uh, democracy, it's also profoundly an attack on Christianity um, to the extent that people come to identify that with Christianity. I don't know why anyone would ever uh, take it up again. So I'm very, very grateful for that work that you've been doing. Well, this book, uh, The Cross Section, I actually went to that first. And it's more about your own religious history and background than I had ever read before. So we're going to get to that in this conversation. I was very struck by, by your own history in regard to your own faith and where you wrestle with that now. But a lot of your recent book, Flag the Cross, Station Wagon Centers on Lexington, Massachusetts, where you moved with your family when you were 10 years old. You're right that Lexington is both a typical suburb and slightly apart because of its role in American history. It's the place where the American Revolution began, famously in 1775. Why did you decide to focus on Lexington? And what was it like growing up there in the 1970s? Well, so I've never written a memoir, Jim, of any kind, because my life has been in many ways extremely standard issue. Um, I mean, I've done some interesting things with it, perhaps, but um, I, I grew up without <laughs> without obvious trauma. I grew up in the most average possible way as a child of the American suburbs at the absolute height of the American suburb. And Lexington was a prototypical suburb, a, a bedroom community for Boston and for the burgeoning Route 128 electronics industry, sort of second only to Silicon Valley uh, in importance in this country. And, um, and, and as leafy and uh, normal a suburb as you can imagine, uh, which means in retrospect, an incredibly important place because it turns out that that for a variety of reasons, I think that I try to explore in the book, that the American suburb in that era probably did as much to shape the 
character of the country and the world we now inhabit as more than any other place, geography on the entire planet. Uh, if nothing else, it poured the most carbon into the atmosphere. But it was also the place, you know, the, the American suburb where a lot of the um, hyper-individualism that came of age with the Reagan election in 1980 and has marked our political system ever since was developed during that decade of the 1970s. So I, I, looking back on it, looking back on my adolescence there, which was interesting, um, um, became a real way to talk about what America was, what America became, and and who should bear some responsibility for trying to fix the, the things that we've allowed it to become. <laughs> mm-hmm, indeed. You talk about two big things happened in Lexington in the 1970s, which you call Thing One and Thing Two. Thing One was a protest against the Vietnam War led by veterans, during which your father was arrested. And Thing Two was a referendum on building low-cost housing in your town, Lexington, which would likely have increased racial diversity. Tell us a story about what happened, particularly with Thing Two and how they're related, and, and why it was so important. Well, these two things happened six weeks apart, which is really striking. I knew about one of them because it, it really impacted on my memory. As you say, uh, when I was 10, my father, a mild-mannered business reporter for Business Week magazine, uh, uh, and 500 of Lexington's town people were arrested on Lexington Green in a peaceful protest against the Vietnam War. That obviously made a big impression on me. It remains the largest civil disobedience action in Massachusetts history. Um and I thought that it represented where America was going um, at that age, you know. Uh, and, and as I think about it now, what it seems to me is very much in the strong tradition of America as group project that begins with FDR and the New Deal and is about the search for, well, in a sense, for what Martin Luther King called the beloved community or maybe a little more or less romantically what LBJ called the Great Society, a, a kind of effort to make America a better place. And so I was very proud of it. When I went back to research that, I learned about a story that I hadn't paid any attention to because when I was 10, because 10-year-olds don't really focus on zoning disputes. But Lexington had, uh, uh, on, uh, had taken up uh, the challenge that Dr. King had laid down in a visit uh, a, a few years earlier uh, to integrate. Segregation in Lexington was not uh, uh, by covenant and not uh, by law. It was simply by economics. Um, but the uh, grandly named Suburban Responsibility Commission, set up in the wake of Dr. King's visit, knew that in order to increase diversity in the town, they'd have to uh, uh, change in certain ways a little bit of its character, that the town could not be entirely single freestanding homes surrounded by big yards and their own driveways because that was simply too expensive for people who didn't have much money, um, that there'd need to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, multifamily houses. And so the town's uh, leaders, really led by the town's clergy, put together a proposal to rezone uh, much of the town and or part of the town to allow a few of these developments. And all the clergy, bar none in the town, were behind it and everything else. And, and when it went to the voters in, a, in an election, um, you know, in the privacy of the voting booth, Lexington voters rejected it two to one. Um, and to me, that becomes the prototype for the other vision of America, 
not America as a group project, but America as a place where you care about your own property values and so on and so forth. That, that, and that was the vision that won. But those were the two things that, you know, the kind of two poles that existed in this place. And your book talks throughout about the relation between thing one and thing two in your own life. And you write poignantly. You say, there was a welcome sign at the end, but no vacancy flashed as well. Uh, but you know that wasn't a one-time thing. It has, as you say, compounded, uh, compounded. Explain that to us. Well, yes. So one of the great mysteries of America is that uh, the racial wealth gap in this country has grown over the last 50 years. Even as, even by our, you know, kind of uh, benighted standards, it's been clear that to some degree, economic opportunity for black people and things is, is greater than it was in my youth, it hasn't been anywhere near enough to overcome uh, this compounding force. So here's the example I'll give you that I think speaks for many. The house that my parents bought in 1970 in Lexington, and my parents were as middle class as it was possible to get. My father was a, a newspaper man. Um, uh, they bought that house for $30,000. That would be about $200,000 in today's money. So when it was sold last, which was about a year ago, it went for a million dollars in today's money. Uh, same house. That was a $800,000 appreciation over those 50 years that was due entirely to having been in the right place at the right time. Um, having had the money in 1970 to get onto the escalator that then rose straight through the roof. And if you didn't have the money in 1970, you weren't getting on it. And we know why people didn't have the money. I mean, uh, you know, that was the legacy of, uh, of Jim Crow, um, you know, right down to the fact that even when we started Social Security in the 1930s, it excluded domestic workers and agricultural laborers who were the biggest, uh, that's where black people in America were likely to be working in those years. So uh, uh, that gap that endlessly growing gap more than anything else is the result of that uh, suburbanization that I, that I got to witness firsthand. You know, my family, a very similar history, I was thinking as I was reading the, the book here, um, my, my dad uh, graduated from college, was commissioned in the Navy, and got married all on the same day. <laughs> and they were sending the troops out to the war, and he went to the Pacific. And when he came back, uh, my dad and all GIs like him got an FHA loan and GI Bill. So housing and education, which are catapulted us to middle-class status in Redford Township. And and no black sailors on his ship uh, was able to get FHA loans in Detroit, the red lining in Detroit, and Jim Crow all over the South, or the GI Bill. Uh, and so these two things changed uh, my family's life. It was the biggest affirmative action program in the history of the country, but it wasn't applied to any black GI who came home from And imagine if that had happened, how that would have changed so much. But it was, it was racialized geography, and it led to the compounding that you so well describe in your book. It's exactly right. And, and it, you know, it didn't require, in a place like Lexington, active bigotry to make it happen. It just required... Uh, a kind of passive acceptance of how things were um, and a passive acceptance of one's good fortune. 
And I will say that the good news uh, is, well, twofold. One, the good news then, if you, if you want to think of it that way, was that the religious community in that town was very, very, very supportive of good action on both fronts, the war and, and on housing. And the good news, to some extent, 50 years later, is that people continued to fight this cause. And last year at town meeting, Lexington adopted, finally, a zoning plan uh, that uh, allowed multifamily housing. And I hope I, Lexington became the first town in the greater Boston area to do so under a new Massachusetts ordinance. And I, you know, I, people have told me that in this case, the, the book played some small role in helping remind people of the history of that community. So one doesn't give up, one fights on. But in the intervening 50 years, as I say, that gap has grown enormously. And in the intervening 50 years, even though people in Lexington now are buying Teslas and putting up solar panels, the carbon that we all poured into the atmosphere is now you know, decimating the planet. The, the carbon that poured out of the back of my family's Plymouth Fury when I was getting my learner's permit in 1974 is still up there in the atmosphere and will be for another 100 years heating the earth. So um, you can... You can make progress, but you can't erase debts as easily anyway as, as we've tried now. Paying back the racial debt and the carbon debt, those are very powerful points that your book goes into great detail over. I was grateful, Bill, that you talked so much about how you're raised in a mainline Protestant uh, family house church and have been a part of three mainline Protestant denominations in your life, Presbyterian, United Church of Christ, and Methodist. Uh, and you talk about how you really had a front row, a front front row pew, uh, and and uh, how you analyzed and reflected on how the major de- declines in membership in each of those denominations that you've witnessed over the years. And you write, quote, no single change in our culture during my life, save perhaps the rise of the Internet and social media, has meant more than the loss of mainstream Christianity's power and authority in American life. What happened in the mainline churches, and why do you think it created such a, what you think is a monumental change in American culture? The numbers astounded me when I went back to look at them. And there was a book, I think, by Mark Silk on the um, kind of history of American, modern history of American Protestantism that I provided the numbers. You know that uh, interchurch center in Manhattan up there by Grant's tomb, yep, uh, uh, the sort of Protestant Kremlin, you know, when, when um, the God box, when Eisenhower, who had, remember, been baptized as a Presbyterian 10 days after taking office because he thought it was necessary, um, uh, uh, when, when Eisenhower laid the cornerstone in 1958 or 59 of that building, 52% of Americans belonged to one of the mainline Protestant denominations. They were Congregationalist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, or Methodist. Um, it's hard to overstate how, how that was the norm for uh, America. And another 30% or so of Americans were Roman Catholic. Um, that number has, you know, gone from 52% to about 13% now, and most of them are as old as I am, you know. Um, um, and with that change, the idea of kind of uh, 
uh, Protestant Christianity, Christianity in general, at the kind of ethical center of American life has shifted profoundly. Um, I don't, I will say, just as we start this discussion, I don't think it's all loss. You know, as long as you were uh, represented that kind of overwhelming uh, consensus, you were in essence baptizing the status quo. And that's not really the role of the gospel. And I think it's quite possible to make the argument that the church, that, that, that the gospel works better as a countercultural force, not a cultural force. Still, that was the world in the world of the 1960s. And I think it was a far more progressive world than people sometimes remember. As I say, in the course, in the case of Lexington, it was the, you know, a very big part of the movement, say, against the Vietnam War and for fair housing. But, it, but that witness, I think, was one of the reasons that it began to dwindle um, because it started making ethical demands on people. It became more than just, you know, baptizing the suburban status quo, started making ethical demands that people didn't necessarily want to deal with. And if they didn't want to deal with it, there arose at the same time uh, as a major force, this other kind of Christianity. Uh, in Lexington, represented by a, when I was 15, I wrote a, uh, for the local newspaper, went and profiled all the churches in Lexington, which was really fun, interesting assignment. But the church that had just sort of emerged as the biggest church, replacing my church on the battle green, the old congregational church, that it was a direct heir of the, you know, Patriot Church of the War. Um, um, that church was Grace Chapel, an evangelical uh, uh, mega congregation. Um, in this case, not particularly, I don't think, at least in those days, right wing, but not at all interested in that, uh, 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 in the Christianity that had marked Lexington before. Instead, it was interested in a deeply personal uh, uh, Christianity that was all about one's individual salvation. And uh, that coincided quite <laughs> perfectly and, and quite dramatically, in my mind, with the rise of the kind of um, uh, uh, political right in this country, represented by Ronald Reagan, who told us that, you know, in his formulation, that the government is the problem, not the solution, or in Maggie Thatcher's formulation, that there is no such thing as society, there are only individual men and women. So do not work on this joint project, this group project of making America better, just work on your own darn self, you know. And uh, the, the rise of that alternative religious witness was obviously, at least for a while, proved more compelling uh, to Americans or to a lot of Americans than the uh, doer insistence that you owed something to the rest of the world, which was at the, the heart in many ways of that mainline uh, theology. And so I think it's actually been an extraordinary loss to this country to lose a kind of that, however compromised it often was, that mainline vision. And I'm, I am heartened by the kind of stabilization of the numbers of mainline Protestants and the fact that these congregations and their seminaries and things, many of them are, if not healthy, at least alive and, and continuing to represent uh, a, a, a really profound um, idea of what the Gospels might mean. 
Well, I'm from that evangelical tradition that Grace Chapel represented, and I've gotten to know some of the former pastors there, and they've they've come to have second thoughts about that. In my experience, I was taken aside by an elder in Detroit who knew I was going into the city, uh, going to black churches and all that. And, and he took me aside to say, literally, I'll never forget what he said. Uh, Jim, you got to understand that Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. Our faith is personal. And that was literally the night that I left in my head and my heart what I was raised with and joined the secular movements of my time. But when I came back to faith uh, uh, later on, uh, I fin- finally found the words to uh, for that conversation. God is personal, I realized, but never private. Personal, but never private. And the private faith that Grace was a part of uh, tied in so politically and 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 people who were there have had second thoughts about that, yet it's gone on to uh, culminate not just from the Ronald Reagan politics, but Donald Trump's politics. So despite that profound change of the role of religion, uh, you still suggest, though, that, that the role of religion is still important. Uh, why is that? How is that? Why is that? Well, at least potentially important, I think. And it's important because it's... Um, because it's the way out of this trap of thinking, one of the ways out of this trap of thinking mostly about our own selves, which I think that hyper-individualism is the, the grave problem of our, our politics and our society. And, uh, and, and so the gospels that, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I'm, you know, so take all this with the, grain of salt. I've never risen higher in the ecclesial hierarchy than Methodist Sunday school teacher, you know, and, and that at a, in such a rural, I live in the deep, deep dirt road, rural communities all my life. Um, uh, you know, I'm in churches so small that the only qualification for Sunday school teacher is, can you on Christmas Eve, take a tea towel and turn a fourth grader into a Palestinian shepherd, you know, and, and if so, you're in. So take it all with a grain of salt. But to me, you know, one of the things I like about the Gospels is their relative simplicity. Uh, uh, it always strikes me that the rest of the disciples are a stand-in for all of us. Um, and the thing that's nice about them is their bumbling cluelessness. They're forever forgetting the whole point and having to ask Jesus again and again, what is this all about again, you know, um, and, and be reminded that it's about loving God and loving your neighbor. And, uh, uh, you know, I've spent my life working on this issue around climate change, which is the most paradigmatic and largest example of all time of not loving one's neighbor, of drowning one's neighbor, of sickening one's neighbor, of making it impossible for one's neighbor to raise their crops, you know, on and on and on. Um, um, we need a we need the uh, uh, message that comes through in the gospel and that comes through, I think, in pretty much every other uh, a serious faith tradition on our planet that allows us to see ourselves as a part of the whole. You see a silver lining, actually, in in uh, this decline of of mainline faith uh, in in Christians becoming a more, as you say, countercultural movement. And you call for a nonviolent Minuteman Christianity, a reference to the American Revolution. I sometimes am calling this new thing that's growing 
a, a remnant church, a similar kind of thing. Um, I did a show of hands last week in my class, and sure enough, most of my students said they would be a part of the group that uh, on their religious affiliation questionnaires would say they're none of the above. They're the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And what I find that movement isn't really secular or anti-faith. Most actually believe in God or something bigger than themselves, uh, but they're, they don't want to affiliate with what religion is doing or not doing or saying or not saying. But they're looking for authenticity and courage, most of all, I find. Yeah, and I think that's very, uh, I think that's very true and very powerful. I think it's a sad mistake that people fell into 50 years ago and still do to reject out of hand, uh, uh, you know, churches and religious communities at the slightest hint of hypocrisy. You know, certainly what people said about suburban, you know, congregationalist churches of the kind I grew up in and things. Uh, hypocrisy is part of the human experience and unavoidable and uh, and and to be understood and worked with and 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 worked around and so on. Um, um, and I, I don't think that religious faith uh, flourishes absent a community. And so I, you know, I, I hope that. At, my fondest hope, truthfully, in religious terms, is that all those Methodists, Lutherans, Congregationalists, uh, Presbyterians, uh, uh, Episcopalians will someday decide that having five church buildings in every town is a big waste and figure out how to combine into, into a uh, denomination that's not overpoweringly large, uh, but has uh, 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 enough people to sing the hymns with some uh, lusty power and also to make uh, a, a strong uh, political difference. It's interesting. After um, I had a podcast with Mary and Buddy last week, she's the Episcopal Bishop of Washington, D.C., and she was the one who spoke after Trump went to the St. John's Church and held his Bible upside down. Uh, and I remember we were in the streets after that, she and I, and so, some authors in the police had moved us out of any place to do a, a gathering or press conference. So I just led this big student crowd in Amazing Grace. And I was amazed how many knew the words to Amazing Grace. And that became our, our sort of service on the street outside St. John's. And so I think there's a real hunger for something among the students that you and I teach. But uh, as you said, teach them the Bibles like te teaching uh, something to Martians, uh, uh, teaching horticulture to Martians, you said. But there's an openness to something like this countercultural vision of the gospel that you learn by, by copying the gospels. I mean, that's a, there is something very good about that, by the way. It means that young people now encountering the Bible, if you can get them to encounter it, encounter it for the first time. Without without any incrustation of you know uh, 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 on top of it, which allows its obvious radicalness to speak. I mean, the the amazing thing is that people were able to take this extraordinarily radical document and figure out how to domesticate it, you know, in all the ways that they did uh, to make it a, 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 to allow it to easily coexist with suburban America, or even more amazingly, to allow it to easily coexist with you know, the bigotries and hatreds and prejudices of uh, 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 of the right, which are, uh, which could not be more antithetical to, I mean, I mean, you really have to work even to 
proof text the Bible to get the kind of result that people aim for at the moment. I mean, it's hard work even to even to in bad faith cherry pick the Bible to you know come out with the things that people derive from it at the moment. I find the same thing. Students who uh, know nothing about religion but perceive its hypocrisy or its uh, its uh, judgmentalism or whatever. Uh, when they hear something different, they say, where's that from? Or where'd you read that? Or, or like, uh, or they hear about the black church for the first time, or they hear about even a Georgetown Catholic social teaching for the first time. And they're drawn to it, even if they're not affiliated. So I find that to be also a real opportunity. And we are blessed right now at the moment with a couple of unsettling figures um, that are helping make that point. Probably more, more than anyone else, Pope Francis uh, encyclical Laudato Si remains the most radical document of the 21st century so far. Um, a, a truly remarkable uh, critique of modernity in a way that no one of prominence has done uh, uh, in the same period. And, and who is also a master of the, like Dr. King or like Gandhi or like Greta Thunberg, a master of the politics of gesture, you know, um, um, remember on taking uh, his office in Rome, his first thing he did was wash the feet of Muslim prisoners. Um, um, well, you know, <laughs> there's there, you know, uh, 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 he's a he's a student of the Jesus of the Gospels, who himself was a great master of the politics of gesture. I just learned that there's a volume two of the Laudato Si coming out now. October 4th, man. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. So, so there we go. Uh, and to teach that in classes and to see the students respond is a wonderful thing. It sure is. No, I'm sure at Georgetown in particular, it's a lot of fun. So you know that the total value of all the real estate in the United States is $33.6 trillion. <laughs> that was a astonishing number me to read that is higher than the GOP, G, GDP of the United States and China combined. And you, that number you're right, explains the racial wealth gap in the United States, why American culture came to be so deeply conservative, and why most of the ice in the Arctic has melted. Unpack that for us. How does real estate explain what has happened to our country and indeed the world? Well, I mean, this is a good place to bring this conversation to a close because it, it really is at the heart of this. That, that, that's where America's wealth lies. Our main preoccupation since the end of the Second World War, the main use of the greatest burst of prosperity that the world has ever seen, it was mostly spent on the project of building bigger houses farther apart from each other. And that explains for the reasons we've described, a lot of that racial wealth gap because of the time that it happened and who could get into the, who could buy into the start of it. It explains, I think, the ongoing rise of this kind of hyper-individualized uh, 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 communal, non-communal life that we've built as a nation, because if that became your wealth, you know, uh, uh, anything to keep your property values high, you know, uh, uh, became not just permissible, but desirable. And of course, it explains uh, the biggest pulse of carbon that anyone ever put into the atmosphere. You had to heat and cool and drive between those vast houses. Um, the, the most interesting part of that, though, and the one that holds some hope, is that it explains, I think, also 
why Americans maybe aren't as happy as you might expect, given the extraordinary wealth with which we've been graced. Because the side effect of building bigger houses farther apart from each other was that we almost by mathematical definition ran into each other less. The average American has half as many friends as the average American of the 1950s. That's a very large drop for a, a you know, socially evolved primate. Um, it's no wonder that we tell pollsters that our sense of satisfaction with our lives is much lower than it was in the 1950s, despite our extraordinary wealth. Um, and with that discontent lies, as always, the possible seeds of real change. And I think you can start to see a little bit of this now. As people say, people my age, one of the things we're working on at Third Act is this increasing effort to do things like densify cities so that older people can live, stay, age in place, as we say now, in vibrant communities that have a big mix of people that can take help take care of each other. I mean, you could imagine building a different America. The problem, of course, is that we have to do it very fast because climate change in particular is a timed test. This is not a the poor you will always have with you kind of uh, long-term problem. <laughs> this is solve it soon or never solve it. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, when I despair, it's that our institutions and indeed ourselves are not great at quick action. But that's the interesting challenge of where we are right now. And there are things to make us think that we might be able to do what we need to do. I want people to read how you tie all of this uh, back to a, a phrase, we've lost our neighborliness. Uh, and you tie that back to the gospel. Jesus says that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. So uh, neighborliness is a, is a word that we all are for, right? But to really explore what that means would, in, that, in fact, de lead us to this issue of repaying the racial debt and the carbon debt. And it, and it also leads us in the direction of understanding our own future and how, I mean, neighbors have been optional in our society for the last 75 years. If you have a credit card, you don't even really need to meet anybody. Someone will deliver everything you need to your front door and you never have to see a person again. And we've lost some of the skills of neighborliness, you know, as people beginning with Robert Bella kind of pointed out. But the next 75 years, neighbors are not going to be optional. My state of Vermont, which is as close to a climate refuge as you might find, had the worst flooding in its history this summer. People a quarter mile from me lost their homes in landslides. We have to and had to come together to try and repair that damage. Vermont has enough social trust left that we will do at least for a while a pretty good job of it, but it's not going to be easy and it's going to demand a rediscovery of that neighborliness. And hopefully in the process, some of that at least will be a rediscovery of the deep and radical calls of the gospel. If that happens, um, you know, on all these fronts, secular and religious, then we've got a fighting chance, but, uh, but we better step up. That would be my closing message. Yeah. So what gives you hope that I, I love the third act where you're trying to talk about how older Americans like us, but we, you and I were students and young people every day. So we have that wonderful connection between third act and yet those students who are leading this thing. Young people are great. And, uh, and, but I've heard too many people say it's up to the next generation to solve these problems. And that's an out and one we shouldn't take. 
those of us of a certain age, and the third act, we organize people over to the age of 60, have extraordinary capacity to make extraordinary change. Uh, and, uh, and we have memory of what the world was like in the 1960s and 1970s. And so we know that transformation is possible. So that's what we're about. Come join us. Uh, it's its own uh, uh, secular church and a good one. Uh, um, and, and in fact, I have to go now to uh, 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 attend to a, uh, a meeting of it uh, over Zoom. So I, Jim, it, what a pleasure to get to talk to you. So many thanks for your work. And uh, I so look forward to getting to work together going forward. It's a blessing to be continued. Thank you, brother. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.